The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together as we move on in the second week of Advent. I want to especially welcome those who are watching online. We're glad you're joining us, and especially if you're a visitor, we want to especially welcome you, and we look forward to seeing you in person at some point. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. And Advent is a season of waiting and of longing prior to Christmas as we rehearse again that Christ has come, Christ is coming again. After hundreds of years of waiting, the Messiah has finally come. So join me as we pray. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe this morning as your word is preached. Cause it to go forth in power and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that our hearts would be wellsprings of joy because of what Christ has done. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What's one of the best feelings in the world? I would argue at least one of them. One of the best feelings in the world is when you have really good news and you want to tell someone else about it. And as you share this good news, they share in your joy with you. They reflect back to you the same joy that you had in telling them about this good news. It's like children telling their parents, you're going to be grandparents or someone discovering a new gadget or a new book or a new whatever it is and saying, this is going to change your life. And someone else says, oh, I love that. That's the best thing in the world. And they just get it with you. That's one of the best feelings in the world. To get someone else to share in your joy, some delicious recipe, some amazing gadget, favorite album. But the converse is also true as well, isn't it? That when you have some good news that you just can't wait to tell someone else, and as you tell them, all you get on the other side is a blank stare, indifference. They don't care at all. They don't get it. You say, you may invite someone over and you serve them up your favorite meal. Here's a medium rare ribeye steak. And they say, oh, sorry, I'm a vegetarian. Or you say, here's my favorite chocolate bar. And they say, ah, I don't really care for chocolate. And inside you're thinking, what's wrong with you? You want people to share in the same joy. And it's a terrible feeling when you get indifference or worse If it's some good news about you, I got a promotion. Not only do you get indifference, but you get jealousy. And they don't like it at all. Or maybe judgment. Or they even ridicule the source of your joy. I can't believe you're excited about that. You can probably recall a time or two when that's happened to you. This morning, we get a glimpse of how the first hearers of the good news of Jesus coming respond. How will this news be received? How will John, how will Elizabeth, and how will Mary respond to the angel Gabriel's announcement? And we get to ask the question also, how will we respond this morning 
to the announcement of this good news. This morning, we get to see the convergence of two worlds colliding. We have a senior citizen, six months pregnant, waiting and resting at home. And then we have a teenager who's likewise pregnant, traveling on the road. What would this meeting between these two very different women be like? Would there be some subtle jostling for position? Maybe a little bit of envy or jealousy. Maybe cold shoulders or comparison. Maybe even contempt. It wouldn't be hard to imagine the elder Elizabeth looking at the unwed mother pregnant and chastising her. Or Mary gazing her eyes on the senior citizen with the large swollen belly and mocking her. What will this collision be like? Luke has given us the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and then the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. These two parallel stories and they converge and collide in this moment. Elizabeth, as you'll remember, has been in self-isolation. Back in verse 24, it says she has kept herself hidden. And Mary, on the other hand, has arisen, arose, and went with haste, in verse 39, to go to Elizabeth. So two very different responses. One goes in hiding, one leaves. Two very different women. One was barren, and one is still a virgin. And then imagine the distance in ages, maybe 60 years between them, one a senior citizen, and one a teenager. Early teens and maybe early 70s. Our passage reveals for us what this collision will be like. Our our passage tells us that as these two worlds collide, it sparks forth joy and praise that will accompany the coming of the Christ. And not only is it going to elicit elated joy and praise and exuberant worship, But it's an invitation to call all believers to join in this song of joyful praise. It's an invitation to join together to be able to say, God has done great things for us. So this passage breaks down into two sections. There's Elizabeth's exclamation in verse 39 to 45, and then Mary's Magnificat in 46 to 56. So look with me at verses 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose, went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So as we saw earlier, Mary leaves with haste. And this means at least two things. She believed Gabriel's announcement. We see back in the previous passage, in verse 36, Gabriel has told her, Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And so she believed in Gabriel believed what he said, and so she now goes. She wouldn't have gone if she didn't believe that Elizabeth was pregnant. But it also means a second thing. It tells us she went with haste because she didn't go home to Joseph. She remained a virgin. Now, Elizabeth and Zechariah probably lived near the temple. It doesn't tell us what town, but it probably would have taken about three to four days to make this journey on foot, about 80 to 100 miles journey. And what we see is that she arrives and then she gives this verbal greeting, we assume. 
And then we see in verse 31 where it picks up. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, and the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. First thing I want us to notice is John's reaction to the voice of Mary. We see this in 41, first half of 41, and then interpreted by Mary in 44. John the Baptist in utero, six months Still in Mary's womb, jumps or leaps from within. This is the same word that's used in Luke 6.23. And that reads, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. There is this inbreaking of eschatological end time joy with the coming of Jesus. Now, I can only assume, I've never been pregnant, but I've been next to my wife for a few of these, I can only assume that Elizabeth at six months has already felt her baby move a few times. Gymnastics, kicking, punching, maybe even the hiccups. But specifically, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she interprets John's movement as leaping for joy. We see that in verse 44. This is a pointer that end time joy has come into the world through Jesus. After centuries of deep darkness, John is the first to see that in the distance, the golden rays of light are breaking in to the deep darkness of the world. And if we look back earlier in Luke 1, verse 15, look with me there. Luke 1, 15, Zechariah was told by Gabriel that John must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So what we see here now in this leaping is a fulfillment of Gabriel's prophecy. The Spirit-inspired leaping points to this coming true. It's not only the first intersection of Elizabeth and Mary, their worlds colliding, but it's the very first meeting of John the Baptist and Jesus, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament sent to prepare the way for the Messiah And then we have Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, who's ushering in the new covenant. Their worlds are colliding. And what does it bring forth? Leaping for joy. Now, next we see Elizabeth's blessing and exclamation that she gives. Elizabeth responds with being filled with the Holy Spirit and proceeds to declare. You'll see that in the second half of 41, all the way to 43. And then in 45 again, she proceeds to declare that Mary is blessed. This collision of worlds sparks forth joy. Now, what we see again and again in this is that God is powerfully at work to unfold these events according to his design. Throughout this count, we see the repeated emphasis that this is according to divine action. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive. The Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth so that she would know that Mary could conceive. The Holy Spirit inspires John the Baptist to leap with joy. God, through the power of the Spirit, is unfolding the greatest of news. Now, what should we make of Elizabeth's words of joy? 
there's a powerful reversal that's being communicated here, that's taking place here. In Luke one twenty four. look back with me. This is right at the end of the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. So for Elizabeth, much of her experience was reproach, shame, disgrace. There was a lot of whispering in their town. Did you know that Zachariah and Elizabeth can't have children? I wonder what that means. And then Elizabeth now, now that she's with child, she knows this. She's hidden herself away. She's being cautious and careful. I imagine it like this. It's like a couple that has miscarried. And now they're pregnant a second time or a third time after two miscarriages. And they think, let's not get our hopes up too much. Because we don't know how it's going to be. So let's not tell too many people because we don't want to have to invite them into the grieving process again. They're, they're tempering their joy. And, and maybe just a word for those this morning who are suffering from barrenness, can't have children. Maybe you've experienced miscarriage, a stillbirth. It does not mean that God does not see and that he does not care. Here in this, we don't know if God will give you a child like he gave Elizabeth, but her barrenness was for a purpose so that she would be used by God. And in the same way, if you're experiencing miscarriage or barrenness, God has a purpose in it. Maybe just to draw you closer to him and so that he could wipe away your tears. But Elizabeth is tempering her joy. But at the sound of Mary's voice, she's like a fire hydrant that just breaks off and then the fountains of joy spring forth 30 feet into the air. And what does she say? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, Elizabeth has no reason to know that Mary is pregnant. Mary's probably not showing. She's maybe a week, two, three weeks. And as I've been told by my wife, you never ask a woman if she's pregnant, even if it's really obvious and it looks that way. You just don't ask. You don't want to make that mistake in case it's not true. And yet through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth knows. She's the first one to give confirmation that from the time that Gabriel gave his announcement to now Mary face to face with Elizabeth, she has conceived by the power of the Spirit. And the beauty of this moment is this. There's no jostling for position. There's no contempt. There's no indifference. There's no comparison. She's not envious and jealous. Oh, here's this young woman come to steal my thunder. I thought I was the special one. No. It multiplies her joy because inspired by the Spirit, she knows that this is the Messiah. The use of Lord in verse 43 is the first one used to describe Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. She knows that this is the Christ child. She hears it from Elizabeth herself. Mary, who's been treasuring these things in her heart, heard it from Gabriel, the angel. He's going to be holy. He's going to be the son of God. But now she hears it from Elizabeth, doubly confirmed. And Elizabeth isn't jealous of Mary's baby, but rejoices in this child. And Elizabeth's words confirm what Gabriel has already said. 
God's favor is upon you. Now, Mary's blessedness in those days and in that culture, and sometimes also in our culture today, the greatness of a woman was measured by the greatness of the children that she bore. You might remember Leah and Rachel battling back and forth, seeing who could bear more children for Jacob and so that they would be more honored, more blessed. This would be a little bit like a mom with the bumper sticker, my child is on the honor roll at so-and-so school. They don't do that anymore because everyone gets a participation award. But it would be like a mom or uh, that gets excited about their child becoming an uh, accomplished musician or a medical professional or serving in the military. There's this, there's this sense of being proud of your child. And here we see In these first two proclamations, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary's blessed because she's the mother of Jesus. But then in verse 45, it's a different type of blessing there. Not only is she blessed because she's given birth to Jesus, it says she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessing, the pathway of blessing comes for those who believe in God's word and obey it. This is confirmed by actually Jesus himself later on in Luke 11. As he was teaching, a woman in the crowd raised her voice. This is Luke 11, 27 and 28. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. What is she saying there? She's saying, your mom must be so proud of you. Look how you've grown up. And Jesus doesn't affirm that. What does he say instead? He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The pathway to blessing is not just for a small, narrow few. If you get chosen to be the mother of Jesus, no, no, no. The pathway of blessing is for all those who believe God's word. And what do we have in Jesus? We have the word made flesh, God incarnate himself. And if we believe and receive Jesus and follow him and obey his words, that is the pathway to blessing. And so this morning, for those watching at home or those here this morning, do you believe God's word? And do you make it a point in your life, in whatever you do, to keep it, to follow it? Obedience is not about earning God's favor but it's the pathway of blessing that he's designed for his people. If you want to have premarital, extramarital sex or adultery or whatever else, that is not the pathway to blessing. If you want to be greedy and cheat on your taxes or whatever else, that's not the pathway to blessing. He's illustrated for us. This is the pathway to blessing. When you hear God's word and you believe it and you treasure it, and you follow it and obey it. Now, we get John and Elizabeth's testimony, spirit-inspired testimony of the lordship of this child. And we get one more testimony, John, Elizabeth, and now Mary in Mary's Magnificat in 46 to 56. And two preliminary questions. Why is it called the Magnificat? And what purpose does it have in the narrative since it doesn't seem to advance the story? Now, This song of praise or hymn of praise is called the Magnificat because it's the name that is uh, reflecting the Latin translation of the word magnifies, which is in the very first line. You'll see that in 46. 
my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, what purpose does it have in the narrative? It doesn't advance the story, but it's a little bit like a musical or poetic exclamation mark that comes in the middle of this unfolding narrative. It's like if you're watching an opera or a Broadway musical, and there's this building and building and building of the story, and then you come to this climactic moment where you get a solo for the main character, and you get a little bit of a glimpse of how their heart and mind is processing everything going on. That's what's taking place here. But the reason Luke records it for us is so that we would have certainty about these things. And not just certainty, but so that we would be invited in to join in the song with Mary. It's not just written there so that we would know how she thinks. It's written there so that we would sing with her how great God is. Now, Mary's Magnificat goes together with a number of other songs. If you'll look further in Luke's gospel. There's Zechariah's prophecy, 68 to 79, of chapter 1. There's the angel, angel's chorus of glory to God in 214, and then Simeon's prayer in chapter 2, 29 to 32. And all of these function together as Luke's canticles or songs or hymns. What someone said, what one scholar said, the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. So what all of these are trying to point out for us They're all musical, poetic exclamation marks, not question marks, exclamation marks pointing to that our faith is not just one to be rehearsed, but it's one to be sung and delighted in. And that's what Advent is for us at one level. It's a season of waiting and suspense and anticipation. And what do we do in that time? We rehearse the greatest story in song So that the joy of this event would rise up in our souls and we would give praise to God. It invites us in to worship and to participate in praise. Now Mary alludes to and draws upon imagery throughout the Old Testament. She not only echoes Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, but she also quotes from or alludes to Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. What does this tell us about Mary? She's writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and she knew her Bible. One commentator said, Her celebration of the miraculous conception of the baby in her womb draws on the Old Testament as if it were a palette from which to mix together the various hues of her praise to God. It's like a glorious painting And she's drawing upon all the colors of the Old Testament to craft forth this song of praise. Now, some have questioned whether Mary, an uneducated peasant girl, teenage girl, could have written something like this. But very clearly, even though the text doesn't tell us, I think she's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How could she not be filled with the Holy Spirit? She has Jesus himself in her womb. Not only that, she knew her Bible She probably heard it read and recited and sang the psalms in her home, committed it to memory. And so here we have a young teenage girl who so knows her Bible, she can pull from all of these different allusions and phrases from the Old Testament to put into a hymn of praise of God. And what does this communicate to us this morning? That whether you're young or old, One of the things we should devote our lives to is 
the reading, the preaching, the studying, the memorizing, and the reciting of God's word. You can never go wrong knowing more and more of God's word. Are you lacking joy this Advent season? Go back to the source of everlasting joy in God's word. It never disappoints because as you read the Old Testament, you'll see again and again promises fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. Not only in Jesus, but in the days to come. He's he's come. He's coming again. We go back to the scriptures to rehearse again, not only this Advent story, but to rehearse the greatest story in all of the world. That God has broken into the darkness through the work of his son and he's fulfilling his promises. God is alive and he's powerfully at work in his spirit. Mary's Magnificat can be broken down into two main sections. Praise for God's grace to Mary is the first section, about 46 to 50. And then praise for God's work for all from 51 to 55. Now look with me at 46 to 50. I'll read it. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In particular, in this section, Mary praises God for showing her undeserved favor. She says, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. What humble estate is this? Well, as we saw earlier, Mary's a nobody in the middle of nowhere. She has no royal lineage. She's no one special. She's not rich. She's not influential. She's not from a prominent family. It's what we would say she has just average pedigree. And frankly, not even average. That would be too generous of a way of describing it. She was a common peasant, one of the little people. And yet what we see in Mary's hymn And in this entire passage, and ultimately in the whole entire Bible and in the unfolding of the Gospel of Luke, is that God has come not just to show favor to the powerful and the influential, not just to bring political liberation for those who are in power, but rather he has come to bring his kingdom to those of humble estate, to show mercy to the lowly. Jesus said in Luke 5, 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. And it's only those who are humble and lowly who see their spiritual sickness and come to the Lord Jesus Christ for healing. What Luke is communicating is that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is turning all of our normal values on their head. So often this world moves according to the whims of the wealthy and powerful. But Mary's song shows us that he picks nobodies and commoners, a complete nobody from the middle of nowhere to be the most blessed woman in the world. If we look further in the Gospel of Luke, who hears about the news next? Who? The shepherds, lowly, disheveled, shepherds in the field. Not Caesar, 
not the Pharisees, not those in places of privilege and power. Advent is where we remember that Christ, this good news, is for sinners. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the good news that has broken in. Whether you're in a place of power and privilege and influence, or if you're in the most lowly of places, Christ has come. And he's come for all those who would humble themselves before this king of kings. It's for us to see what God is signaling with how he comes into this world so that we would be like Mary and stand back and think, oh, look how gracious and good God is in coming in this way. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't have to dust yourself off. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to the foot of the cross. You can come exactly as you are and find hope and healing in Jesus. This morning, do you see the love and condescension and the gentleness of our Savior? And do you recognize your neediness for Christ? These truths should be like electrical currents that come together to spark joy in our hearts. No matter how much I've sinned, how much I've fallen, Christ has come for me so that I too could taste of this good news. This good news isn't just for Mary and no one else. Mary turns to praise God for what he's done for all, particularly for Israel. 51 to 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So three times it says God will tear down those who are arrogant, scatter the proud, brought down the mighty, the rich he has sent away. But instead he's going to exalt those of humble estate and fill the hungry with good things. In verse 51, there's a reference to showing the strength of his arm. This is hearkening back to Exodus, where again and again, God led you out with a righteous right hand, a mighty right hand. And so there's a picture here of God leading a new and greater Exodus. But instead of a mighty arm that's shown in plagues and the angel of death and of a pillar of fire and cloud, what would his mighty arm be shown like? In the strong and yet gentle arms of Jesus that would ultimately hang on the cross and bring forgiveness of sins for all those who will come. That's the strength of his arm that will come. And then this song recognizes that God turning thing on its head so that those who are lowly must humble themselves and those who are proud and arrogant must humble themselves to be part of God's eternal kingdom. Now in verse 54 and 55, he goes all the way to Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He's hearkening all the way back to Genesis 22 in this reference to Abraham. Mary's going all the way back. And there was the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
because you have obeyed my voice. This prophecy is being fulfilled so that not only in the advent, in the coming, the incarnation of Jesus, not only will Abraham be blessed, not only will Mary be blessed, not only in the line of David, but all the families of the earth will find joy and blessing in this Christ child. And this is being worked out even now. We get three testimonies, John, Elizabeth, and Mary. But we too today, as God's people, if you're trusting in Jesus, we too give testimony of this glorious good news so that others would come in, so that all the families of the earth would come in and take hold of this good news. You are being sent on mission by God to declare the good news that has broken in to the darkness. Who are the people in your life who are unaware of this good news? Well, what people in your life right now lack joy? To who can you share this good news this Advent season? I want to apply this in just a few ways as we come to a close. The first is that God is faithful. This passage shows us fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment. God has not forgotten his promises. Didn't forget his promise to Abraham. He's fulfilling his promises to Zechariah. Fulfilling his promises to David. There would be someone who would sit on your throne who will reign forever. This passage reveals to us that God is fulfilling all of his promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning for us, we can see that God is faithful. He is true to his word. And so you can trust him. You are not alone. You may be watching alone from home or you may be feeling more isolated than ever in this season. And yet we're reminded That even if you're wandering about in a spiritual desert, that God sees, he hears, and he's gloriously at work through the power of his spirit to save sinners. He is faithful to his people and faithful to fulfill his promises. The second is that the Holy Spirit is at work. These spirit-inspired testimonies of John the Baptist and of Elizabeth and of Mary all point to the blessing that will come from this Christ child. And so this morning, how will you respond to this Christ child? For those of us who are believers, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, will we let these truths wash over us so that we respond like John, leaping for joy, respond like Elizabeth, exclaiming the goodness of God, or respond like Mary, proclaiming his greatness in song and in poetry? How will we respond to this good news? Don't let another Christmas pass without responding to the substance of this good news, that Christ has come, Christ is coming again. Lastly, Advent is an invitation to worship. This passage is not just about recounting what happened. Yes, he certainly does that, but he invites us in to partake and celebrate with Mary in this glorious good news, to sing, to join the song of the redeemed. So we're not just to stand on the outside looking through the glass of all the dancing and singing that's taking place within and yet remain on the outside in outer darkness. No, 
And I know that there's some this morning, whether watching online or here, that have never tasted of this good news. Or you have family who has never tasted of the good news. Or co-workers or friends. And this Christmas, this is an opportunity for us to give testimony of what God has done. That the first rays of golden light are breaking into the darkness so that we would usher in many more. So that all the nations of the world would come and find joy in Christ. This passage not only reveals for us what happened, but it calls us to rejoice and celebrate and delight in all that Jesus has done, all that God has done. And we have this spirit working within us so that we can confess Christ has come. Christ will come again. So Father, We ask that you would help us receive the joy of Jesus today. For some, for the first time, and others with a renewed sense of your presence and faithfulness, filled and empowered by your Spirit to testify to this good news and enabled to join in this eternal song of the redeemed. You have done great things for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.